The reading this evening comes from 1 John, chapter 3, starting at verse 18. And that can be found on page 1226 in the Pew Bibles. So, 1 John, chapter 3, starting at verse 18. Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. This, then, is how we know that we belong to the truth, and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence whenever our hearts condemn us. For God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we obey his commands and do what pleases him. And this is his command, to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. Those who obey his commands live in him, and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. Before we begin, let's just open in a word of prayer. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are a God who is all-knowing yet forgiving Thank you that you speak to us through your word. And so we pray and ask that you will do just that tonight, that you will speak to all of us through the word which you have provided. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. I have one question for you this evening, and that is this. Can you, as a Christian, know that you're going to heaven? Can you know that you're going to heaven. I don't mean wish. I don't mean have a vague hope. I mean, can you know? I mean, can you have a settled assurance, a confidence, a rock-solid certainty that you are going to heaven, that you have a relationship with the God of the universe? Can you know? Can you know in your heart that you're going to heaven? And I don't mean heart in the way we use the word today. Please hear me. That's not how the Bible uses the word. I mean heart in the way the Bible uses it, which is a very big word. It's not just your emotions. It's not just how you feel. It's not just your will. It's not just your intellect, and it's not just your conscience. Your heart in the Bible is the very core and center of your being, which directs your emotions, your will, your intellect, and your conscience. In, your Bible, in, the, in the Bible, your heart is that part of you which oversees everything else. It's your control center. Do you know in your heart, in your heart of hearts, that you're going to heaven as a Christian? Do you know that? Can you know that? That's the question for tonight. A completely frozen river is something unheard of where I come from. 
So it was very amazing the first time I actually saw a wide, deep river frozen so solid that people were using it as a road. It's one thing to see it in pictures. It's quite another thing to actually look at it face to face. Gary Enrig is an American, and he tells the story of an English tourist who traveled to the United States in the late 1800s to visit his brother. His brother had a small holding somewhere in the Midwestern United States. He'd never been there before. He traveled all that way. He took a train to the nearest town where they told him that his brother lived somewhere down the trail and on the other side of the river. This was in winter. He set off. He went down the trail and eventually he got to the water's edge and there wasn't a bridge. There wasn't a ferry. There were no people around. All there was was a half mile long stretch of ice and snow. And on the far side, a thin trail of smoke coming from the chimney of his brother's cabin. It was cold. It started snowing. It was getting late. He had no idea how thick this ice was. He didn't know what to do, so finally he plucked up the courage and he decided that he just had to get across. So with his heart in his throat, he got down on his hands and knees and he started pushing his case across the ice. Sometimes with his hand and sometimes with his head. It was agonizing. He'd push and then crawl and then push and then crawl and then push and then crawl freezing in terror every time he heard a noise, wondering if he was about to disappear through the cracked ice into the freezing water beneath. When he was partway across, he suddenly heard a massive loud noise. And he froze and he looked back, and what should he see but a 14-strong team of horses pulling a sled loaded high with coal, driven by two men singing at the top of their lungs, thundering past him, waving as they went past, all the way onto the other side. And there he was, on all fours, his case in front of him, mouth open, feeling like a total muppet. He stood up, dusted himself off, summoned what dignity he could, as only an Englishman can, and he walked the rest of the way to his brother's cabin. Now all of those men, the man on his hands and knees, and the men on the sled were on exactly the same ice. The two on the sled knew how certain and secure they were and they lived with confidence. The one had no idea how certain and secure he actually was and he lived in fear and anxiety. That's how many Christians are in their relationship with God. We need certainty. We need to be sure. We need to know where we stand. Hermann Bavink was a theologian who died in the 1920s. And in his book, The Certainty of Faith, it's a thin little book, he says this, we need certainty above the invisible and eternal things above. We must know what we are and where we are going. We must know that our personhood is more than a ripple in the ocean, that the moral battle stands far above the natural order and that the highest and purest ideals of the souls are not illusions, but reality. We must know how we can be liberated from the accusations of our conscience and from the weight of our sin. We must know that God is 
and that he is our God. We must be sure we are reconciled to him and can therefore approach death and judgment without terror. In all this, our greatest need is for certainty. It is the deepest, although often unconscious, need of the human soul. Christianity is no blind faith. We need certainty, and we need to know. As Steve said, we've been going through John's letter on Sunday evenings. And tonight we come to that part of the letter where John focuses on one thing. He focuses on knowing. Being certain in your heart that you are, in fact, a Christian. Now, some commentators say it's difficult to know what John's main purpose was in this letter. But if you boil it all down, then you'll see that John wanted to answer just two questions for his readers. Firstly, who is the real Jesus? And secondly, what is the real Christian life? Just those two questions. Why those two? Well, firstly, to state the obvious, they're two of the most important questions we will ever face. If Jesus Christ is both God and man then we need to know. And then we obviously also need to know what the real Christian life is. That's the first reason why he raises those, addresses those questions. The second reason is that there were a number of false teachers around, as they always are, even today, intent on leading people astray. This was covered in previous weeks, so I'm not going to repeat it, except to remind you that these false teachers were directly attacking Christ's identity who he really is as both God and man. They were undermining people's faith. So John addresses that problem in this letter. He focuses on those two questions, the real Jesus and the real Christian life. Okay? He then goes on to apply his answers to those questions to a number of themes in the Christian life, one of which is knowing with certainty. And it's a theme throughout the whole letter, but especially in tonight's passage, the idea that we can know, that we can have a settled conviction and a full assurance in our hearts that we are secure for eternity, that we have eternal life, is what he concentrates on. Now, it's a major theme throughout the letter. So look at chapter 2, chapter 2, verse 3. Now, he's given a short introduction in chapter 1. He's been talking about Jesus being the sacrifice for our sins. And he says in verse 3 of chapter 2, we know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. John is saying that you can know him. He's saying that not only can you know Jesus, but you can know that you know Jesus. You can be sure. Jump to chapter 3, verse 19, the passage we're looking at tonight. John explains how we can know that we belong to the truth and how we can set our hearts at rest. Look at verse 21. How we can have confidence before God. Look at verse 24. How we can know that he lives in us. Look at chapter 5, verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Why did John write these things, this letter? He wrote it so that you may know, so that you may have confidence. John's main concern in the verses we're looking at tonight is that you, the genuine Christian, the genuine Christian, may know that you have the truth, may know that you're in him, 
may know that he's in you, may know that although you're a sinner, you are not condemned, may know that you have eternal life. That's why he writes this letter. That's why he's focused on these verses. He wants you to be completely comfortable with driving a team of 14 horses across the seemingly treacherous ice in your life and not just crawling across on your hands and knees. That's what he wants. But the question is, how? What is there that can give us this certainty? Because you have a deceiving heart, just like I do. You have a deceiving control center, so you can't always trust what it tells you. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? John wants you, if you're a genuine Christian, to know that you are liberated from the accusations of your conscience and the weight of your sin, despite what your condemning, deceiving heart may tell you. So what can we trust to give us the assurance we need that we're right with God? There are three factors, three things that John points us to. He points us firstly to our obedience, he points us to God's sovereignty, and he points us to God's presence. So firstly, our obedience. Now, if you've attended St. Mary's for any length of time, then you will know that you cannot earn your salvation, you cannot earn heaven, and you cannot earn God's forgiveness. And by any length of time, I mean like, you know, two sermons. Right? It's something we rightly stress. In fact, Clive mentioned it this morning. Salvation is a gracious gift of God. You can't earn it. And following the rules will not save you. Only Christ can do that. That's abundantly clear on just about every page of the Bible. But equally, what we are will be seen by the lives that we live. So in verse 23, John says, and this is his command, his command to believe in the name of his son Jesus Christ and to love one another as he commanded us. Those who obey his commands live in him and he in them. We can't earn our salvation by believing in Christ. We can't earn our salvation by loving one another, but they're both commands, they're orders, which if we obey will give us proof, what James calls fruit, that we are his, that we live in him, that he lives in us. That's what John is saying. They are evidence. Those who obey his commands live in him and he in them. So obedience is an essential sign that we live in him and that he lives in us. So it's right to look at your obedience as an encouragement, not in pride as an achievement, in humility as an encouragement that God is working in you. Look at verse 18. Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. This then is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence whenever our hearts condemn us. We can set our hearts at rest in his presence by placing our faith and our trust in him and by loving each other sacrificially, sacrificially with our time, with our possessions, with our wallets. That's obedience. But what does it mean to set your heart at rest? What does he mean by that phrase in that verse, verse 18? Home for me as a 12-year-old was a house with a nice-sized garden and a dog. Now, a house in South Africa is what we call a bungalow, single story. The garden was big enough that with a decent run-up, I could drop-kick a rugby ball over the roof of the house, I could run around to the back, I could retrieve it, I could go back to the front, and I could do it again and again and again for hours on end. It's what boys do. It's what boys should do, anyway. 
One Friday afternoon, my Alsatian was behaving like the Japanese opposition and wouldn't get out of the way. I fainted left, I dodged right. I drop-kicked the ball, aiming at the roof. Unfortunately, the kick wasn't quite as clean and true as I had intended. The lounge door which opened onto the garden was mostly made of glass. This is 43 years later. I can still see it perfectly, crystal clear, bright sunshine, dog on the left, ball traveling through the air. The ball sailed gracefully into the air and then in slow motion started its descent, way short of the roof. It hit the door, dead in the center, shattering the glass into a thousand pieces and spraying them into the lounge on the other side. I'll skip the gory details, but suffice to say that my heart was not at rest when I entered my dad's presence that evening. It was filled with dread and anguish, despite the fact that I'd done a fantastic job of picking up every sliver of glass. Having our heart set at rest in his presence means being able to stand in front of God with a clear conscience, knowing that our debts are paid means entering into God's presence with a glad, uplifted heart, free of the weight and the burden of sin and of guilt. If we want hearts which are at rest in the presence of God, then John says we need to obey the Lord's command, to believe in the name of his son Jesus Christ and to love one another. When we love with truth and action, verse 18, it assures our hearts before God that we are of the truth, verse 19. That's the first factor to consider for assurance, the fruit of obedience in our lives. Okay. The second factor is God's sovereignty. Look at verses 18 to 20. Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. This then is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence whenever our hearts condemn us. For God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we obey his commands and do what pleases him. Now, obviously, when John says we receive from him anything we ask because we obey his commands, he does not mean that arriving with my shopping list will get me every possession I've ever dreamed of if I've been a good boy. That's a subject for another sermon, but just note for now that context is king. What has John been talking about? He's been talking about not having a condemning heart. He's been talking about having a heart at rest in God's presence. What he's saying is that believers with freed hearts and obedient lives can be assured that God will answer any prayer, large or small, for our good and for his glory. To expect to get whatever I want is to completely miss the point. I'm a child coming to my loving father. I'm not a consumer coming to Amazon.co.uk. Look at chapter 5, verse 14. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. It's a contingent promise. It's not an open checkbook. 
But as I said, that's a subject forever is going to preach on 1 John chapter 5, and it's not me, but it's not the main point of the passage tonight. The important point for our topic of knowing is verse 20 of the passage tonight. This then is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence whenever our hearts condemn us. For God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. God is greater than our hearts, than the control center of our being, and he knows everything. Now you might think he's saying that there are some Christians who need a heart which is more sensitive and more accusatory because they skate through life and try and ensure that they don't have a restless heart by hiding from their sin. It never works. God knows everything. Now that is undoubtedly unequivocally true, but it's not John's point here. Okay? His point isn't that God's omniscience, his all-knowingness, if that's a word, is going to catch you out. His point is that God's omniscience means your heart cannot trump God. He's trying to make the point that your heart, which is restless and racked with guilt as a Christian in front of God, cannot trump God. He knows everything. So why do you let your heart condemn you? Let me put it another way. There are probably some Christians here who have a really sensitive conscience and you struggle to let go of the guilt of your sin. Now there may be many reasons for that, but some of you are in a situation where the way you deal with that is to say, look, God may have forgiven me, but I can't forgive myself. What I did was awful. I'm sure Jesus' blood has covered me. I'm sure that my sin has been dealt with. I'm sure God no longer holds it against me, but I cannot forgive myself. I can't get rid of that stain. I can't look beyond what I have done. It's not unusual for some people to feel that way, right? And if that's you, then you're who this is aimed at more than anyone. Tim Keller makes a very astute observation on this verse when he says that if you stop and think about it, then you'll realize that deep down this isn't just an issue of an oversensitive conscience. This is an issue of control. It's an issue of control. So let me give you an example. Teresa Keith is with Campus Crusade, and she penned this account of her conversion. She said, My past was very colored. I drank and partied a lot and once terminated a pregnancy which I struggled with the most. Even though I didn't know God personally, I felt I had made a decision against God's will in choosing to end a life he had created. I really found that difficult. Ken and I had been together for about 10 years when in the fall of 2006, my daughter Ashton and I moved into Ken's house to see if we could work things out. It was not the easiest of times. A year later, Ken, though not a Christian, felt we should go to church. He was brought up in the church and wanted Ashton to have a little bit of the sheltered life he had known. Honestly, I just pacified him and did what he wanted. But the church didn't feel as cold to me as the old one I had sometimes attended on holiday. The speaker talked about the life I've led in ways that were relevant, so I kept going back. Listen carefully. I tried really hard to forgive myself, and struggled with the thought that the Lord would forgive me if I asked him to do that. 
I was tearful for about two weeks, reading, exploring, and trying to understand forgiveness. One night, feeling really low at church, it dawned on me that I couldn't forgive myself. I actually had to go to him. I needed to go and ask God into my life. Now, Teresa clearly understood that she needed God to forgive her. But she also understood, as she said, that she struggled with the thought that the Lord would forgive me if I asked him to do it. She struggled with the thought that God was greater than her heart. She struggled with the thought that he had the authority to forgive. If your heart condemns you, and you're a Christian, if you know you are one with Christ, if you know that your sins are forgiven, but your heart still condemns you, then here's the problem. You're promoting your heart above God. If you know, like John says back in chapter 2, that if you sin, you have an advocate who speaks to the Father in your defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, who is the atoning sacrifice for your sin. If you know that's true for you, and yet you cannot forgive yourself, then that's because you've promoted your heart or something in your heart above God. What you're saying is that he's definitely the county court magistrate, but actually the Supreme Court judge is the condemning heart who won't let go. I can't forgive myself even if God has forgiven me. If you press this even further, you're treating something as greater than God. Something as a higher authority. Something that you think should have control, you should have control over, but it's got the better of you. Maybe you completely blew it in a critical exam and you can't let it go. Maybe you blew it in your career and you can't let it go. Maybe you blew it sexually or in your marriage and you can't let it go. You look at that thing, it's always in front of you, it's always in your heart, and it just can't forgive you. It's another God. And it's one that won't forgive. False gods don't forgive. You give and give, and they always want more and more, and if you fall short, it's unforgivable. And maybe, just maybe, that's what's really at the root of your inability to forgive yourself. John wants you to know that God is greater than your heart, and he knows everything. And maybe it's time you looked at how God has worked in your life and see that God is greater than your heart and acknowledge that he is the sovereign king in your life and put your condemning heart at rest. It's like Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, I care very little if I'm judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. This is what he means. I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. God is greater than, he is sovereign over our hearts and he knows everything. So those are the first two factors to consider for assurance. One, the fruit of obedience in our lives and two, the sovereignty of God. And last but by no means least is the fact of God's presence. Look at verse 19. This then is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence whenever our hearts condemn us. Now, <clears throat> salvation, if you think about it, is a staggering and an amazing thing. The God of the universe reaches into your soul, he brings it to life, he puts his spirit into the center of your being, 
into the core of your life, into your heart, and he renews you. It's an amazing and amazing thing. Ephesians chapter 1. Having believed, you were marked in him with the seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Look at verse 24 in tonight's passage. Those who obey his commands live in him and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. It's unfathomable, but God is present in the heart of the true Christian. But what I'd like to do is make this a little bit more tangible and a little bit more practical. Think about prayer. Now, prayer is the silver thread that runs through this entire passage and also through the whole of John's letter. So look at verse 19. Set our hearts at rest in his presence. Verse 21. We have confidence before God. Verse 24, those who obey his commands live in him and he in them. All of this is about engaging with God. In many respects, all of this is about prayer. But what these and many other verses tell us is that prayer isn't just a request, which is how we tend to think of it, right? Don't forget to say your prayers. There's nothing wrong with that, but it's really a bit more, right? Prayer isn't an email or a text message that you fire and forget. You know, you kind of, hi God, exam tomorrow, need help now, send. Right? Airplane mode, because you don't expect a reply, and go to bed. That's not prayer. Okay. Now God's kind enough to hear our con inconsiderate requests. He's kind enough to hear our casual conversation, and that's all good. But is that really what John is talking about when he says, set your hearts at rest in his presence? David wrote Psalm 16 at a time when he was in considerable danger, facing the possibility of death. He realized that every other form of protection was secondary and was evaporating. And he said this, in you I take refuge. In you I take refuge. In, in verse 8 he says this, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. I have set the Lord always before me, he says. In his presence means he's here. He's in front of you all of the time. It means that God and his word are the filter through which you see reality because that's how you see reality as it really is. It means that when you pray, you engage with this being who knows you better than you know yourself and who is the governing authority in your life. That's what David meant when he wrote, I have set the Lord before me in my face. He is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. How would you converse? How would you engage with? How would you pray to someone like that? Someone who has the power to destroy or forgive you. Someone who has forgiven and died for you. Someone who knows you better than any other being ever could or ever will, including yourself. Someone who says it's done. Rest your condemning heart because I know it all. Someone whose actual presence you are in. How would you engage with that person? Not through a text message. That's for sure. God can give us peace. 
We can set our hearts at rest in his presence, but not if all we're doing is sending text messages. As you may know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a pastor in Germany during the Second World War. A friend of his, Hans Werner, recalled Bonhoeffer's awareness of what the Jews were going through, and he wrote this. He said, Dietrich was driven by a great inner restlessness, a holy anger. During those days, we learned to understand not just human revenge, but the prayer of the Psalms of vengeance, which give to God alone the case of the innocent for his name's sake. It was not apathy and passiveness which Dietrich derived from those Psalms. For him, prayer was the display of the strongest possible activity in the midst of some horrible, horrible terror. Prayer for David, prayer for Bonhoeffer, with God before them and at their right hand, in his presence was the greatest weapon that they had. They engaged with God, they remonstrated with God, they wrestled with God, and God set their hearts at peace in his presence. So can you know with certainty? Absolutely you can. This isn't arrogantly saying, you know, look at my life, look how I've done, and I can look at those things and they give me assurance. Not at all. It's not to ignore the fact either that the Christian walk is a daily walk of faith and of repentance, of turning from our sin, of repenting daily before God. But it is about the fact that you know by God's grace whom you believe, and you know by God's grace what he's done in your life, and you know he sovereignly knows everything. And you know he's with you. You know his presence. That's how you know that you belong to the truth. That's why your heart can be at rest in the presence of the almighty God, because of what he's done and because of who he is. Let's close in prayer. Lord, thank you. Thank you that you're a forgiving God, a God who's merciful and a God who's gracious. Help us to know, Lord, that you're present here always. Help us to know that your confidence, our confidence and our trust in you can be firm and certain. Help us to meet with you, to engage with you in a way which pleases you, is for your glory and is for our good. Help us to walk with you daily in faith and repentance, to know that we can be at rest in your presence because you are greater than our hearts. We ask all of this in the name of of our Lord and Savior Jesus. Amen.